We are reading from Luke's Gospel, um, from chapter 12, verse 13 through to uh, verse 24. I will say that from verse 22 to verse 24 is some of the most read by myself. Um, it's one of my favourite Bible passages, so let's, let's read together. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. You know what it means. Um, For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and, and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about what your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap, and they have, and they neither, they, and the, Okay, I'm going to start that again. Consider the ravens. They neither sow or reap. They have neither storehouse or barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? So, yes, this is the talk about money and wealth and possessions. I've been looking forward to it. Uh, Not very much. (laughs) Uh, this is where we get to. Uh, I was in a church in America for five years and uh, a family invited their parents to come across twice while I was there and they were very cynical uh, about church life because in their view in America and often in the same Australia, all churches are after is your money. That's all they're after. I was asking for money. So they came across twice in the five years. The first time is when we were preaching on Luke 12 about this. See, I told you. Then the second time they came over, appreciate on 2 Corinthians 8 about money, and it just confirmed their suspicion. Every time we come here, they're talking about money. Now, I don't think we need to talk about money all the time, but we need to talk about money and wealth and possessions uh, when they come up, and they come up in this part of the Bible. So we've been following as we uh, make our journey with Jesus on the road to Jerusalem. We've looked at what the nature of what a disciple is. Uh, disciple's a follower who commits to learning from Jesus and committed to his mission. Then we saw the cost of what that's going to look like. The road might be hard, might not be always straightforward. You'll need to make some decisions. But the good news, you've got Jesus with you and that will be sufficient to get you all the way through to the end where he lays down his life. The road you're meant to follow is a road of mercy, where mercy is the first instinct you have 
in your relationship to others and defines how you deal with everyone, irrespective of their background, whoever they may be. And yesterday we looked at the subject of prayer. But now we come to one of money, wealth and possessions. I have to say, surprisingly, this is the number one topic that Jesus returns to most regularly on this trip. Often people say, oh, you know, Christians got this hang up about sex and all those sorts of things. And Jesus teaching, uh, if you want to say where he lands more than anywhere else, it's here. So let's have a look at it together by praying, first of all. Heavenly Father, pray that you might help us as we look at your word now. Lord, this is a topic we all get affected by in different ways. And pray, Lord, that you would speak to us directly through your word. By your spirit, open our eyes to those things we're blind to. Encourage us in those areas where we're operating well. In all things, Father, may we deal with these areas in a way that's pleasing to you, according to the teaching of your son, Jesus, whose name we want to hear. In his name we pray. Amen. So a bit of background. Uh, I want to go back, not in the New Testament, but to the Old Testament. Uh, remember the story of Israel, how they're rescued out of Egypt, and they're going to make their way into the Promised Land. And when you get to the book of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses calls the people of Israel together, said, come along, guys, I want a bit of a chat. And the chat lasts for nearly 40 chapters, but it's a long chat. He's got a lot to say, because he knows, by the way, he can't. he's not going to enter into the Promised Land. So these are his last words to the people of God as about to launch across into their new beginning. And there's obviously a lot of things that could go right or wrong as they step into this new venture under God's direction. Uh, the obvious wrong things, they could fall into idolatry and follow the practices of the nations around them. They can fall into sexual immorality by following the practices of the nation around them. But there's an area that surprisingly Moses lands upon about where they could trip up. And it's a bit harder to perceive. He says, well, one of the problems that could arise as you go into the promised land, the land flowing of milk and honey, is that things actually go very well for you. Uh, you prosper. You actually accumulate lots of things, uh, wealth and possessions. And there's a life of abundance and there's good life in the promised land. He says, this could be a problem for you. Because over time he's concerned that they will begin to perceive that what they have is a consequence of their efforts. Look what we have achieved. So I'll read out a little section for Deuteronomy 8. It just give you a flavour. It comes up a number of different times. Again, anticipating what life in the land will look like. He says, when you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you today. <coughs> Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, then you build fine houses and settle down. And when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have has is multiplied, then your hearts will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. It goes exceedingly well. They've got lots of good things. They're big flocks and they increase their wealth. 
but their hearts become proud of what they've achieved and somehow God's forgotten the process. And so the issue of what I call growing materialism is not a new one. The Bible speaks about how how hearts somehow need to be radically reoriented all the time. Otherwise, we'll start to take hold of the things that we have around us and our commitment to them will change our commitment to God. And we become still committed to God, but God somehow sidelined. Our hearts are captured by the things that we observe, the things that we feel like we've invested in, the things that we feel like we've achieved. And satisfaction is found in abundance. And I want to say, if there's a message for all of us today in Australia, this is it. This is the most, And if I was to say, the biggest challenge to Christianity in Australia today is, ready? It's this issue, materialism. It deadens our hearts. We become satisfied all sorts of other things rather than satisfied with God. Anyway, so as Jesus talks to his disciples as they walk along, he wants to focus on this particular issue of money and possessions. And the particular issue, of course, for us is that we're swimming in it. The stuff is around everywhere, uh, and we need to hear Jesus' teaching very clearly, and we can easily bristle against it, because it's speaking directly to what we perceive as what we have, our wallet, our bank balance, our saving strategy, my retirement, my buying habits, whatever it may be, and we become easily blind to this area. We're easily blind to materialism and greed because it's a sin of the eye. And the sin of the eye means that I see things a certain way and my eye can't see it properly because the sin captures my heart. And so we're blind to it in ways that are very hard to perceive. Why is this? Why is money, the love of money, such a problem? Um, Money allows me to get things. And money makes real the temptation to take pride in things. Money gives me the capacity to take pride in education, to take pride in wealth, to take pride in possessions, to take pride in my house. Now, hear me again. These are the good things. Remember, we're not talking about bad things. We're talking about the good things that we can all have. There's nothing wrong with these things, but the good things can crowd out the the heart to the point where our satisfaction and hunger for God is dissipated. It's what I call the nibbling at the banquet of the good life of the world dulls the heart to pursue God. Now, so as we go along, it's interesting how often this topic comes up, if I suggest it. I'll just, if you've got Bibles there, you can look and follow. The first time it comes up as he walks along the road is here in Luke 12. And he says, do not let your heart uh, basically be satisfied anything except for me. Comes up again in Luke 14, verse 12 to 14, where he talks about the banquet. And says, when it comes to the great banquet, make sure you invite the poor and marginalised. Don't invite the rich and all those. In Luke 16, we've got the story of the rich man, Lazarus. And the rich man there is not painted in a great light, is he? Poor old Lazarus at the gate with the sores and no money. 
He's the one who has his life overturned. The rich man had so much in his life, has forgotten God. And Luke 18, we had the rich ruler. And where Jesus says these startling words, which the disciples basically immediately reacted to, how difficult it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And you go, well, who can be saved then? I'm saying to you, how difficult it is for a rich person to be entering the kingdom of God. And we justify those words and say, oh, we hear it different ways. Hear it. Then we have the story of Zacchaeus, the wealthy tax collector. And when he says, Jesus, I want to follow you, he says, yeah, go and give all your money back. And we hear that and say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to us. But Zacchaeus, who is a rich man, who's got money from others... If he's going to be part of God's kingdom and part of a follower of Jesus, he's got to deal differently with the money he's accumulated. And then we have Luke 19, 11 to 27. Cling to your uh, store of things that you've accumulated. Anyway, it comes up again and again and again, this very same issue, all the way through. So this morning, I just want to look at this very simple story. Many of you would be familiar with it. Uh, the story of the parable, the rich fool, and see what God has to say here for all of us. It starts with someone in the crowd. Again, you could be saying, we keep on coming to the same story. There's a crowd that's coming with Jesus wherever he goes. And this time, someone in the crowd calls out to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, and Jesus replied in verse 14, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So here he is, an unnamed pepper, a member calling out, I want you to help me in a family dispute. I've got a problem with my brother. My brother has got all the money from the family. I've got nothing and it's completely, in Australian language, unfair. Unfair. I've got nothing. He's got everything. Jesus, can you do something for me? Okay. It's a call for justice. He feels aggrieved. I think I can understand why. He's been written out in the family trust, family will. Everyone else has got the money. i got nothing. At one level, Jesus says, I'm not willing to intervene. You know, he says, the man who appointed me a judge to be arbiter between you two. This is not why I'm here. I've got more pressing things. I've got a greater mission to be involved in rather than settling family disputes. But immediately, did you notice, he sees an opportunity to say, well, there's something bigger going on here. This is not a call for justice. It's actually something larger driving him. That's why he said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in abundance of possessions. As often is the case, not always, often the case, the cry for justice or fairness marks some deeper desire that's unstated. <clears throat> and I think we all have that. Why do I miss out when other people seem to have things go their way? Why doesn't it work out for me? It seems to work out for everyone else. Life's just not fair for me. 
Though for others, it seems to be like that. So what does Jesus say? He says, does it say, be on your guard against greed? Did you notice he said, be on your guard against all kinds of greed? Uh, greed manifests itself in many different ways. It's not just one way greed comes to us. Uh, greed is the insatiable desire for more. The insatiable desire for more. It's not limited to money, uh, but it's the drive to try and improve your position in life. To make your life better. Now, again, you keep on hearing me say, is there anything wrong in trying to make things better? Yes, but again, what is the aim in doing this? We'll come to this again and again. And Paul says, um, greed is idolatry. We create a mental picture for ourselves of what we think our life should be. And that mental picture then creates a controlling narrative about how we operate because we've got a picture of where we think we should be, what we deserve to have, and it controls all sorts of internal worlds that no one's even privy to. It's a part of the imagination we all have. And the trouble with greed, when it's like this, it can never be satisfied. You can have nothing and be greedy. You can have a world view where you have, from a world's point of view, have everything and be greedy. Greed is a picture of what you want to have, irrespective of what you actually currently have. There's a very famous quote by a, a very famous rich person called J.D. Rockefeller. Uh, he said this, How much money does it take to satisfy a man? You know what his answer was? Just a little more. <laughs> How much money does it take to satisfy a person? Just a little more. You never quite get there. And that's the insatiable thing. I just need something more. Whatever I have, it's not quite enough. Just that other thing. And that's where our hearts get captured. It leads to a dis-ease, a dissatisfaction with what we have. There's a lack of contentment that our lives are configured in a way that is good. Please hear me again. I'm not saying there's no place to get a better house, but it's again where your heart is in the matter. And so that's where Jesus finishes. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And they'll say, well, the abundance of possessions is almost life-threatening. That seems like an extraordinary statement, Jesus. Uh, well, we need to listen to Dr. Jesus, the doctor very clearly here. Uh, it's a life-threatening condition, and we need to weigh his words very carefully. Now, I know how to do things in a dangerous way. Driving down the F6 at night on the wrong side of the road, I know is a very dangerous activity. <laughs> However, it never occurs to me when I walk around a shopping centre that could also be dangerous. Doesn't, doesn't cross my mind that one is clearly danger, danger. The other is, well, that's just everyone does that, doesn't it? Nothing wrong with that. But if your heart is captured by things and you walk around and your heart's saying, well, if I could have that, how much better? How much, if I have that, how much better? If I have that, how much better? 
my heart starts to get captured by a whole narrative of things that takes me far, far away from where I could be. And we excuse ourselves like this all the time. <clears throat> well, at least I don't have a lot. And the issue again is not how much you have, it's how much you want to have. How much you think what you have will define your life in some sort of way. So as is often the case, as we walk with Jesus, he tells a parable, a very, very well-known parable. Verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now the farmer in the story is obviously relatively well to do already, uh, but he makes, by any estimation now, understanding an astute business decision. He has a good fortune to have a bumper crop. This exceeded all expectations. Things have gone really well. But what is significant in the story, he already has enough resources to build the barns before the crop is actually harvested. Now, why you've got to think about that is that in that world, people live from hand to mouth, so you just have enough to do what's in front of you. So he's already got money accrued that he can invest to build the barns before he even sells any crop. So he's a really well-to-do guy, which is unusual in first century Palestine. The other thing, did you hear as I read that story, who is at the centre of all the story? I'll read it again, and you notice this. I'm sorry to repeat. Just notice the eyes. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself. Step one, thought to himself. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. There I will store my surplus, and I'll say to myself, he's having a good old conversation, isn't he? He's talking to himself, and boy, it's a great thing to hear. His voice is absolutely brilliant. He's never heard someone give such good advice in all his life. He's caught up in his own little imaginary world and having this conversation to himself. And here is the big problem we all have. No one else is privy to it. As you're sitting here now, I don't know what's going on in your mind. I don't know what you're thinking about. And the imagination is captured by things in a way that you start to have these conversations. You know those, uh, if you walk along the shops as I do, and you see you walk past the newsagent. $90 million jackpot draw. 
Have you ever stopped for a moment and thought, hmm, what would I do if I had got that? Has anyone? Possibly. Of course you have. What would I do? And it appeals straight away to what? Your imagination. The hidden world. What would life be like if I had that? The whole gambling industry is built on this premise. Uh, it's, a, a, it's a terrible thing, gambling. They sell it as an entertainment industry, but it's actually built on preying on people's imagination. It preys on people's greed. And by the way, I, just, I know it doesn't apply to you. In the whole of my region, do you know the place with the highest percentage of pokies? is in Berkeley, the lowest socio-demographic area in the whole of our area has the highest number of pokies. It's a terrible blight in our society. But the gambling industry is not about entertainment. It's about appealing to the very imagination where you think to yourself, if only I could have. So the greed of the heart appeals to the imagination again and again. And the process is this happening so instinctively all the time that we hardly see it. The whole, well not whole, a lot of the uh, advertisement industry is built on this same premise. So we're just swimming in the stuff everywhere. Is this part of the world we're in? And we can't get out of it, it's just to acknowledge it, that's all I wanted you to do. But most significantly, the whole process is unbelievably self-absorbed. Who is the only person the man in the story is thinking about? Everyone else is gone. There's no one else around. It's just him. No relationships, no community, no consideration. It's just about himself. He's lost the capacity to have relationships that matters because he's been captured by a world where it's about him trying to get forward. And Jesus won't accept, as I hear often, well, it's my money, I can do with it as I like. Because ultimately, the whole point of the story is that it's not what your money, it's God's money. And you and I can feel the pull of all this all the time. Well, it is his life. I'm, I'm just putting it in language we would use. It's his life. It's his work. He has got this through his endeavour. The work of his hand. And I understand with the right resources and possessions, it's okay for him to configure his life as it suits him. And I make sense. You have, like, when you hear this, Australia, not Soul Revival, you have plenty of good things laid out for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's like an Australian slogan, isn't it? It's almost speaking to our hearts. You have plenty of good things laid out for many years. Take life easy, take life easy eat, drink, and be merry. But there's something deeply, deeply wrong. Deeply wrong. And we know it's deeply wrong because God says, you fool. You fool. Of all the things that God could say to someone, there is something that cuts the heart, isn't it? You fool. You fool. He lived life as a fool. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Through his possessions and money, and he imagines how he can secure a future 
And greed is driving a projection of his mind into a future that he controls. So why is he a fool? Everyone's okay? Okay. So where, why, why is this a problem? Where is a fool? The fool says in his heart there is no God. Remember Psalm 14 verse 1? <coughs> the fool says in his heart there is no God. The rich man is imagining a future that he can secure, but there is no reference towards God in the whole of that picture. Remember, the only person he's speaking to is himself. The only person is part of this. There's no God in that story anywhere, is there? Now, if I think we were to survey him at the time, he's one of those people who would tick the God box. I don't deny it for a moment that God, in his mind, is still relevant and there. But he, it's not that he doesn't think God doesn't exist. It's just that he's not relevant to his life. He's not relevant to his decisions. Decisions. Uh, greed of the heart drives out the imagination to focus on you and it ultimately, and this is why it's idolatry, greed is idolatry, it de-gods God. De-gods God. It robs God of his godness. Greed makes God disappear. Greed is so absorbed about the self that you become a fool because God somehow magically moves to the edges. So the rich man thought he could control his life, but of course he does not. Uh, he thought he could find a, a security for his future, but of course he cannot. He's not acting a way rich towards God, and that very night, death's cold, clammy hands come gripping around his throat, and when it all is set back, and now he's finished. His life comes to an end. The ultimate treasure he had in mind, years ahead, relaxing, eating, drinking, having fun, disappears. And I want to keep on asking, what's wrong? What is wrong of relaxing, eating, drinking, having fun? I can put it in so revival terms. Have you had a fun weekend? Have you played games? Have you had a good time eating? Drinking? <laughs> Don't let me know that one. When we have eating, drinking, uh, relaxing, eating, drinking, having fun, it sounds like the typical holidays I see you all go on. What did you do on holidays? Oh, we had fun, we relaxed, we ate, we drank. So what's wrong with that? But what's wrong with it when it's the sum of life? Nothing wrong with it in anything. Like good, there are good things. But when it becomes a sum of life. Remember 1 Corinthians 15? Paul says, if there's no resurrection, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow. What? You die. Just knock yourself out. It's all, just make as good as you can. And you can feel that Paul all the time for all of us, if we're being honest. We are told it is your choice. It's your future. It's your possession. It's your security. It's your superannuation. It's your savings. You've looked out for yourself. You've worked hard. You've provided. It's your house. 
You take care of yourself. But is that the true picture of life? Once we start to get in that story, we've got the same narrative. Where has God gone? He's just disappeared. He's, just a, he's moved aside. Not say you don't believe God, but somehow it's not become significant as part of enmeshed and all that. And the foolishness here is only found out when it all comes to part. He went to bed. I can imagine in my mind, he's reached the final point. The last of grain, he's built his barns, the last of grain's been shoved in. He think, I finally accomplished it all. This is the moment. Goes to bed with a satisfied smile. And then death comes. It's a very stark image. But everything he's worked for now, all that he's accumulated, all he put his story in, all the security thought, is gone. And guess what he does at that point? He stands alone with nothing except himself before God. All those things he thought he could rely upon, not with him, are they? He's got God and nothing else. He never imagined that the satisfaction and security of life was to be found in God and God alone. He imagined that he could find the abundance and ease if he could just have enough. And that's why greed is so insatiable. It's always a profound sense that I could just have more, I could be satisfied. If I could just have this, it would be okay. Please hear me again. I'm not saying don't ever have your holidays, don't have your fun, but it's where our hearts get captured, which is the issue. And I say, this is dangerous territory. If you hear anything else, this is dangerous territory. My heart gets easily captured by these things that are so prevalent all around. And the answer to here is that he wasn't rich towards God. Verse 21, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. How valuable God is. How wonderful He is. He will care for us. His Son will care for us. Our security is found in Him. It just keeps on, we have come back to that, it puts the possessions and wealth that we inevitably we all have. I've got a superannuation I'm investing in, I'm trying to pretend otherwise. But I've got to start and value God and following Jesus more than that. And so I've got to really focus hard upon that. Because I can get caught up, oh, oh just speaking personally, I'm going to get close to retirement soon. I've got to get my life and all configured to get into retirement, haven't I? And there's a good thing about that. But the danger about that, that consumes my life. And God's no longer the one I'm trusting in. Well, we finish in the next section of verse 32 to 34. Do not be afraid, 1232 to 34. We go to 1232 to 34. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
this makes the same point again. All of life is a venue where we show what we treasure most of all. And God is infinitely more valuable and treasure centered than anything else we can have. Money and stuff, I'll keep on saying, is inevitable. It's going to be all around us. I want you to receive it with thanksgiving. But more fundamentally, I want you to say that money is there to use and lose, not to control. Money and value and things are there to use and lose so that you would value God and his son more than anything else. You know what God has given to you? His kingdom. He's given you his son. There's nothing we can need to fear. Nothing will take it from us. We can readily at that point save with him, sell your possessions and give everything we have to the poor. Jesus is not setting this as what disciples need to do, but he's asking them the question of generosity, not accumulation. We are to be generous people, not necessarily pursuing accumulation. I want to say again, to qualify, if you live in Australia, you have accumulated more than your parents ever imagined was possible by just living in Australia. Do you realise that? How much you've accumulated? Don't pursue accumulation. Pursue generosity. So, the heart moves to what you cherish, and we want to cherish God above all. Cherish not the stuff we have around us, cherish God and his son so we don't become the fool who live for things all around us. Jesus wants you and I to be powerfully persuaded that being rich towards him and treasuring him and and heaven above everything else is the most wonderful freeing life any follower of Jesus can have. We don't realise the danger that's all around us because we're swimming in it. I swim in it all the time. I live your life like you do. My eyes are captured all the time by things. We need each other to be make sure that we continue to be captured by Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom that captures our heart so that we don't become sidelined with God himself. Amen? Amen. Leave it there.